This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, a company whose whole grain oatmeals, flours, and baking mixes are the backbone of proper nutrition for athletes. And so, for a lot of us here at Outside, they've become part of our lives. When you asked me about Bob's, I said, oh, I can unironically speak on behalf of their products. This is Outside producer Alex Ward, who swears by Bob's quick-cooking steel cutouts. Can you just describe steel cut oats for people that don't know exactly what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, steel cut oats are, it's just like oatmeal, but it just makes you feel a little better about yourself. Technically, steel cut oats is oatmeal that hasn't been rolled flat, so they're more toothsome and break down more slowly. But for Alex, the difference is in how it's perceived. It's like if I had oatmeal, it's like, yeah, okay, everyone's had an oatmeal guy. It's like, oh, I made some steel cut oats. It's like, mm, you... You're, you take your health seriously. It's like, who's that guy? Who's this guy? I bet you also ran a few miles this morning. The difference between regular and quick cook steel cutouts is that they're cut into smaller pieces and cook in just seven minutes. So if you are pressed for time before or after a workout, you don't have to resort to sugar-loaded instant oatmeal. Um, have you ever used any of that time you've saved in the morning to actually run a mile or two? No. I've used it to... Scroll through the news a little longer, <laughs> maybe have another cup of coffee and still be a little late. <laughs> but but I know that at least I had a healthy breakfast. Find more healthy breakfast options that are at least theoretically compatible with your fitness goals at bobsredmill.com slash outside, where you can enter for a chance to win some Bob's Red Mill prizes, a subscription to Outside, a book from our collection, and a brand new backpack. One winner will be selected at random each month. That's bobsredmill.com slash outside. From PRX and Outside Magazine, this is the science of survival. It's not going to happen. I'm just saying. Okay, Tim, you ready? I got a This is part two of our series on snake bites. And it starts in a room full of the deadliest snakes on Earth. You don't want to take it on the hand, do you? Where are you no. going to take it? Back in the finger. What you're hearing is from a YouTube video. It's a bunch of people gather out a cage full of PNG taipans, water cobras. And you can hear rattlesnakes in the background. Someone is about to get bit. On the back wall, there's a swimsuit calendar tacked up to the kind of custom insulation designed to keep tropical snakes warm through a Wisconsin winter. Off camera, the crowd is pretty drunk, sniping commentary and occasionally wandering into frame. On camera, Tim Freedy, 51 years old with buzzed gray hair wearing a Slayer t-shirt, is opening up the cage of a six-foot-long black mamba and tentatively sticking his hands in. The black mamba is one of the deadliest and most aggressive snakes in the world. There's nothing particularly distinctive about it, no hood or intricate patterns, but it's six feet long and can be thick as your forearm. Found mostly in East Africa, its venom affects the central nervous system, shutting down your respiratory muscles. You stop breathing. Monocle just struck at you. No talking, no Symptoms can appear in seconds and really take hold after 10 or 15 minutes. Death often comes just a half hour after that. But Tim Freedy's friends showed up halfway to waste it, and they wanted to see it. So now he's got the snake in a one-hand grip just behind the head, 
and he's holding it up to his left forearm, right in front of the camera. Tinderaspus pilepus, LD50. Ready? Yep. When he loosens his grip just a little bit, the snake bites him twice, without making a sound. Two bites. Son of a bitch. Once it's done, he turns and calmly puts the snake back in its cage on the wall. Then, what just happened finally sinks in with the crowd. This guy's a fucking beast right here. Let me see, let's Show see the arm. I, I wouldn't do this, and, and he there did. There it is. That's proof that them fangs went in. Two bites from a black mamba, and the only apparent damage is a thin trickle of blood down his arm. Fuck yeah. Two bites, Joe. Dude, dude, I, I, I got hairs standing up on every part of my body. Dude, and I actually touched it. Okay. Let me touch it. So, Tim, after, not as I'm curious, what did that feel like? This fucking guy let me touch the snake and okay. he had control of the head. So that's great. He's the fucking man, right? Right fucking here. Okay, but the, we got. All right, yeah, so I just want to know what did it what what did it feel like? It burns. Fangs hurt going in like any snake. In part one of this two-part series, we took you through the excruciating details of a rattlesnake bite that outside writer Kyle Dickman suffered in Yosemite. When he got bit, the venom attacked his bodily systems almost immediately. He passed out, then his stomach purged itself, and eventually his leg swelled up to twice its normal size. When he finally got to the hospital, he stayed eight days because the snake venom had destroyed the clotting agents in his blood. He was at risk of spontaneously bleeding to death. Inside Tim's body, there's a similar battle being waged at the cellular level. Right about now, his eyelids should be starting to droop, and he should start having trouble swallowing, then talking. Then his vision should blur out, and he should get sleepy. Eventually, he should pass out or stop breathing. But he doesn't. Because at the cellular level, his body is winning this fight. So here's the cool thing. What's happened? Back up, Joe. Is all my good antibodies are neutralizing all the venom fractions in dendroaspis pyolepis. Right now, they're binding to all the fractions. Tell me why venom. other humans don't have those antibodies and you do. So what's happening Tim is, has these antibodies when other people don't. Because 19 years ago, he started injecting himself with small doses of snake venom, building up a tolerance to their effects. His goal, at first, was to be able to survive two bites from two of the deadliest snakes in the world, without antivenom in a single night. But he's done that. He's immune. And now, he has bigger goals. In his blood, he thinks, lies the key to making a universal antivenom. A treatment that could save hundreds of thousands of people around the world who get bit each year. Current antivenoms are outrageously expensive, hard to find, and only effective if it was made for the exact species of snake that bit you. Not only that, but because antivenoms are made from sheep and horse proteins, when they are injected, the body tries to fight them off. They make you sick. Tim Friedy thinks his blood holds the key to a one-size-fits-all treatment. And in the June issue of Outside, Kyle Dickman has a story about Tim and the scientist, Dr. Jake Glanville, that thinks Tim is right. Glanville thinks he can make a universal antivenom out of Tim's blood. So Tim Friedy is either on the brink of making a brilliant contribution to immunology and science as a whole, or he's just a metalhead who spent 19 years getting bit by snakes over and over again, primarily for the benefit of his friends. We, 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 we've developed antivenom for black widows. We've developed antivenom for bees, like Africanized killer bees, you know, which actually could end up killing you. Um, now you want to do the same thing with snakes. 
but a room full of deadly snakes isn't really the right setting to explain just how crazy this is and how it might change the face of medicine. In fact, if you want to talk about what's really going on here, we should actually start with another video, one where Tim isn't performing for an audience. He's all business. There was a time when I was just Googling incessantly venom and venom-related things. And so if you do that, uh, it doesn't take you very long before you come across Tim and his sort of outside presence on the internet. And This is Kyle Dickman, outside contributing editor, rattlesnake bite survivor, and ever since, a little bit of a venom obsessive. Um, there was this one video that he shot that's described in the story of, of Tim letting uh, a PNG Taipan and a black mamba bite him. And those are two of the most potently venomous snakes on the planet. PNG Taipan. And so he lets him bite him, and he's just sort of like, blood is dripping down his forearms, and, and most people would be dead in about, you know, a half hour. Black Mamba. And Tim is just sort of like calmly talking to the cameraman about what his antibodies are doing, or how he wants to develop a universal venom from his blood. It's 9.30, the bites were at 8 o'clock, back to back in five minutes. No antivenom used, no money spent, and that's the point. Thanks for watching. It's not quite as entertaining as the Black Mamba party trick, but this is the video, except technically it's two videos, that brought Tim Freedy and Dr. Jake Glanville together. It's also the video that introduced Kyle to both of them. Two bites, just a few minutes apart, from two of the deadliest snakes on the planet, in the name of a universal antivenom. Which at this point, conventional wisdom said was pretty much impossible. So, like, the first time I saw it, I was like, this guy is a crack. There is no way that that's going to happen. This is just lunacy. And then it turns out that, like, I go to his website, and I click around on his website, and there's this guy named Jake Glanville referenced. And so I start looking up Glanville, and it turns out that he's this really highly accredited scientist, and what he was doing actually had a chance of, of, of being successful. Jake Glanville is an immunologist, not a herpetologist who studies reptiles or some kind of venom scientist. So we're actually going to stop talking about snake bites for just a second and talk for a bit about the immune system. Because if Jake and Tim are going to make a universal antivenom, they're going to have to harness the immune system in a way it's never been harnessed before. And the idea that you could improve or augment the immune system is an idea that's captivated Jake Glanville ever since he was a kid growing up in Guatemala, getting asthma attacks during the rainy season. Asthma is an autoimmune response, the body attacking itself. And Jake was fascinated. And then, when he was in high school, Jake's dad came down with necrotizing vasculitis, another autoimmune disorder, which doctors treated with chemotherapy. That type of autoimmunity, you give them chemo and it wipes out the active immune cells that are causing the autoimmune reaction. And so it sort of reboots the immune system and he was able to recover. All this to say that when Jake finished high school and got to college at UC Berkeley, he was, in his words, fiercely interested in immunogenetics and genomics. And then as a hobby, I was just always interested in computers and algorithms. And then the two laboratories I showed up at, that's when I was exposed to the idea that you can apply math and computers to help analyze the immune system. And in fact, you kind of need those tools to really understand how the immune system works. So, like pretty much every other major breakthrough in the 21st century, Jake applied massive computing power to something we thought was too complex to ever really understand. Because Jake says the immune system is largely a numbers game, 
Viruses and bacteria, antigens, can take billions of different forms. And once something gets a foothold, the body doesn't have an antibody to fight it off, it can sometimes double itself every 30 minutes. And evolution's solution to that is kind of beautiful, right? It's this technique to create a set of cells that are evolving in real time, uh, in, in huge numbers of them. So. What the body does in response is to constantly evolve and change its defenses, trying different combinations and configurations of antibodies against each new threat. Hundreds of millions of them. And that system is entirely predicated on combinatorics. And so to really understand it, you need high-throughput sequencing or high-throughput data generation and then algorithms and computers to help interpret it. And that's, that's what I specialize in. He was a, he's kind of a hacker and a mathematician and an immunologist. And he sort of, through, through this confluence of all these like technological, whatever, revolution in immunology, he, they, he's basically been able to, to figure out how to isolate, um, engineer, and clone fully human antibodies. And the reason that's important is because fully human antibodies are, are for a long time, have been sort of thought of in science as the silver bullet for drugs. When the immune system finds an antibody that works, it replicates it in its B cells, its antibody factory, until it's eliminated the antigen. Then it keeps those B cells on hand, so it can quickly make more antibodies as a kind of quick reaction force case it ever sees that antigen again. Pharmaceutical companies do something kind of similar, searching for antibodies that solve certain problems, like cancer, Alzheimer's, or multiple sclerosis. When they find an antibody that works, however, they make a drug out of it and sell it, sometimes making hundreds of billions in profit. So after he left UC Berkeley, Jake went to work at Pfizer, the pharmaceutical giant. And while he was there in 2012, he developed a computer program that essentially speeds up the process of matching antibodies with antigens. He made Pfizer much better at developing new drugs. And then he left to start his own company, Distributed Bio. So uh, Jake was really good at doing this stuff. And so um, back in the winter of 2016 and the spring of 2017, he developed this new product that allowed him to isolate antibodies from hyperimmune patients. Instead of simply speeding up the random search for new antibodies, now he could take the antibodies from someone who had beaten a certain disease and copy them. I'm always tinkering in my lab, and I developed a technology to make it easier for us to take the blood of someone who had an interesting immune response and to extract out the genetic information that encoded how to make the antibodies, the recipe to protect, provide that protection to others. And I was trying to figure out cool applications where I might apply this technology in a way that would give me a, a cool new drug and, and demonstrate its power, with the sort of the low-hanging fruit. This was, and it is, brand new technology. And to prove that it worked and could provide real results, Jake went looking for a test case. Something that would show the power of this new technology to take successful antibodies and turn them into new treatments. And so I was thinking, you know, it would be really cool. We should go after something where it's just a slam dunk. The antibodies are definitely protecting the person, and it's a straightforward problem. And that's when uh, I was talking with my wife, who's a field biologist, and we started thinking about antivenom. That was when Jake went online, found Tim Freedy, and called him up. And that, finally, brings us back to snake bites. I think the most useful analogy that I can think of is, is venom is basically a compilation of 40 to 60 different viruses. The body's process of dealing with a snake bite and fighting it off is an immune response, basically the same system our body uses to fight off the flu or chickenpox. 
your body, in order to fight off those venoms, your body has to produce an antibody to turn off either every individual or an antibody capable of turning off groups of them. The big difference between a snake bite and the flu, however, is simply volume. If you catch a virus by someone sneezing on you, you're getting, what, a few tiny droplets? Most of which is just saliva, not virus. And it lands on your skin, or ends up in your stomach. Only a tiny fraction of it finds a way to take hold in your body and start reproducing. Snakes, on the other hand, deliver a few hundred milligrams of concentrated viruses, all at once, directly into your bloodstream. It will wreak havoc until your antibodies destroy every last piece of the venom. But as long as you don't die first, your body will respond by making antibodies until it finds one that can dismantle venom proteins. Then it'll make a whole bunch more. But venom works fast. So to beat a snake bite, you need really high titer levels, which means your blood is already stocked with venom-killing antibodies. And the only way to get those titer levels up is to expose yourself to snake venom without dying. And that means tiny doses of venom that you build up slowly over time. This sort of approach um, has been used over the ages. I mean, it's referenced in, like, Princess Bride. To think, all that time it was Shortcut that was poisoned. They were both poisoned. I spent the last few years building up an immunity to iocane powder. Yeah, people have been doing it forever, basically, but... Tim Tim kind of took it a lot farther than anybody else. And so way back in 2000, he started injecting cobra venom, very small amounts of cobra venom. Uh, didn't know if it was going to work. Didn't know if each venom was going to be worse than the next. This is Tim Freedy in a recording studio, not on YouTube. And in the year 2000, he started ordering poisonous snakes, milking their venom, diluting it, and injecting it. Didn't know if I could maybe survive a Western Diamondback versus a Taipan versus a Black Mamba, you know, versus a Mojave Rattlesnake. Basically, he had turned his body into a vaccine factory. And so his interest in it was that he liked venomous snakes. He was interested in venomous snakes. He wanted to be able to handle them and get bit by them and then not have to worry about dying. He started with cobra venom, diluted down to one ten thousandth of its normal concentration, and then slowly built up from there. And Tim isn't very specific about these first few months, because he doesn't share information that could encourage other people to try this on their own. And no one helped him. But he kept with it, and the first test of Tim's theory came on September 12, 2001, on accident. Not only was it the day after the attacks in the World Trade Center in New York, but one of Tim's good friends had just been killed in a car crash. So Tim got really drunk and picked up a cobra. Picked up a cobra, got bit by a cobra, um survived it, was totally fine. Went back like a half hour later, picked up another cobra, got bitten by it, and nearly died. And basically did die and and had to be uh, resuscitated by by medics. Um, After that, Tim's conclusion was the best way that that from now on he would dedicate his life to surviving two snake bites in a single single, night, or really a single sitting without any antivenom. You know, it just made sense to me that if I have these snakes, I should be immune to it. But the only way to test immunity, really, is to let a snake bite you. And you pay for that in pain. Oh, the pain's intense. The pain, you want to basically cut your own finger off. It's like smashing your finger with a hammer. I mean, you don't sleep for days on end. The swelling's terrible. You know, it's painful. I mean, it's, it's painful as shit. Different species affected Tim's body differently. 
and because he wanted to be immune to all of it. Over the last two decades, he cultivated resistance to as many different kinds of snakes as he could find. He may be the only person alive who can tell you what all these different kinds of deadly venoms feel like, like a kind of masochistic sommelier. I'm curious if you could just talk me through kind of like the the qualities of, of different venoms. Um, like what does a black mamba feel like compared to a rattlesnake? Uh, depends on what kind of rattlesnake. Um, like Mojave's more of a neurotoxin that's not too bad. In general, snakes whose toxins target the central nervous system, like black mambas, taipans, or water cobras, aren't as painful. Because part of how they work is shutting down the nerves. They don't hurt as bad. Other snakes, like rattlesnakes or vipers, have proteins, Freedy calls them fractions, in their venom that attack the tissue itself, breaking it down on contact, almost like acid in your blood. And that hurts a lot. If the necrotic fractions weren't in snake venom, it'd be really, really easy to do. But because of the necrotic fractions in vipers, pit vipers, cobras, cobras really bad. Cytotoxins really bad. It also depends on where you get bit. If you're immune, you want lots of blood flowing to the site, carrying antibodies that turn off the venom. So bites on the finger, where you don't get much circulation, are bad news. And it's just really, I mean, without immunity, you're going to lose a finger, lose a hand. Um, but even with immunity, it's still tough to pull through. I did, and those are all finger bites, one on the tip of my finger. And I pulled through all three of the Western Diamondback bites, and those are adults, big snakes. And that's when I knew that my immunity worked. But being immune doesn't mean they don't affect you. And being in pain, and or totally focused all the time on beating snake bites, took more than just a physical toll. Tim's ex-wife has said that his snake bite project ruined their marriage. She dealt with it for a decade, the second half of their time together, and then they split up in 2010. Freedy's relationship with his kids, two sons, has also suffered because of the snakes. But to roughly the same degree that Tim neglected those relationships, scientists have kept him at a distance. Since the beginning, freedy has been trying to get the attention of people who might be able to make something useful out of his immunity. But he's had better luck with cable TV shows. It wasn't until Glanville came along that someone saw how Tim's history of being bitten so many times by such a wide variety of snakes made him valuable to science. But for all his value, there are also problems with working with a guy like Tim, who's been experimenting on himself for so long. We'll get into those after this break. So earlier, we heard from producer Alex Ward about how quick-cooking steel cutouts changed his mornings. In fact, after discovering better oatmeal, Alex has been branching out into other better ingredients from Bob's. And since then, now I now most of the, I buy all my pancake mix is Bob's. Um, I've been making a lot of homemade pasta recently, and their semolina flour is fantastic for it. Um, How are they turning out? How's the pasta turning out? Oh, it's delicious. Uh, I you know you know what it was. I had a, a trip to the beach with my cousins and my parents uh, a couple months ago, and. We made homemade pasta one night, and it was so fun, like, making the pasta, drying it all over the kitchen. I have pictures. We're just drying. You know, you're, you're pulling out cupboards and draping pasta over it to, like, dry it out. It's all that sort of stuff. Uh, so it was a really fun whole, like, family thing. It was great, and the pasta's been delicious. And it's, like, so easy to make pasta and so much tastier than, than box pasta. Yeah. It's, like, it's totally worth it. And there's no easier way to impress someone 
than making homemade pasta. Like it's so easy to make. It's like it's as easy as like cooking pasta, but people are so impressed and you're like I have a pasta machine and this flour. Uh-huh. It's not that hard. Some might say that semolina flour is the quick cut quick cut steel cut oats. Quick <laughs> It's not quick to say, but it's quick to eat. (laughs) It was going to be brilliant, whatever I was about to say there. Now we'll never know. Find out more at bobsredmill.com slash outside. And remember to enter to win a bunch of different prizes. That's bobsredmill.com slash outside. So before the break, Tim had been trying to reach out to scientists, but having no luck. And then Jake Glanville came along and said basically... What you've done with your immune system dovetails perfectly with my company's ability to copy antibodies. And I think we might be able to make a universal antivenom from your blood. We think that because Tim kept injecting himself or letting snakes bite him from lethal snakes from all over the world, from every major continent that has snakes, we think that he's probably trained his body to produce antibodies that cross-react against the evolved versions of toxins from many different species. Glanville's basic theory is that he can exploit the fact that viruses are lazy. They don't change what doesn't need to be changed. And it turns out that's also true of the proteins that make up snake venoms. A lot of them have really similar structures. Antibodies work sort of like a key in a lock. If they fit a protein, they neutralize it. And every time the body is exposed to a new lock, it pumps out new keys, trying to find one that fits even better. With repeated exposure, it'll eventually find a kind of master key that fits more than one lock. Give it almost 20 years of nearly constant exposure to snake venom, and it'll find keys that unlock entire families of proteins. Recent advances in genomic sequencing have shown that across all 700 species of venomous snakes, the most destructive proteins belong to just 13 different families. And this is actually controversial, because not everyone agrees this will work. But in theory, each venom within that family could be turned off by a perfect antibody. So all your body has to do is find a perfect match 13 times, and it would be able to neutralize all venoms. Except technically, some venoms require more than one antibody, so the number is actually probably closer to 30 perfect antibodies, but the point is, it's an attainable number. Glanville's great insight was that because Tim had been exposed to so many snakes from so many different parts of the world, maybe his blood was already teeming with those multi-protein-killing antibodies. All Glanville had to do was copy them, and turn them into something that could be ejected into snakebite victims. And then he'd have his universal antivenom. And a universal antivenom is something the world could use. Snakes kill between 80,000 and 130,000 people each year, and cause about 400,000 limb amputations. In June of 2017, the World Health Organization categorized snakebites as a neglected tropical disease, because antivenom hasn't really progressed since it was originally invented, back in the 1890s. So it's got all these problems. It costs upwards of $2,300 per vial, and only lasts two years. It also makes you sick. It's expensive, it's not very shelf-stable, it's going to cause often pretty gnarly reactions at the injection site, and you can't give it to the same patient more than once because the second time their body has created a bunch of antibodies against the, the antivenom itself. Antivenom is made by injecting horses and sheep with snake venom and then harvesting their antibodies. But it makes you sick because your body recognizes the animal proteins as a foreign substance and tries to fight them off. 
And so the first time it works to block the venom, but by the second time, now your body is mounted a response against the antivenom itself. So you get this thing called serum sickness. Make an antivenom from human proteins, like Tim's, and that probably won't happen. But the other problem with current antivenom is that it's only effective against the venom for which it was manufactured. That's not really a big deal here in the US, where there are basically only four different types of venomous snakes. But it's not so simple in other parts of the world. So instead of, let's say you're a kid in India and you step on, you get bit by a venomous snake, but because there's 60 different species of venomous snakes in India, you really don't know what kind it is. So right now what happens is that kid goes into a clinic and they look at the bite and they say, what are his symptoms? And they guess and they give him an antivenom. And sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong. And so the consequences of that are, are um, the kid either loses a limb or he dies, right? So, or he doesn't lose, or they get it right and he lives. So that with if you have if Tim's blood is truly the source of a broad spectrum antivenom, that kid, that same snake bitten kid, can now go into a clinic, get this broad spectrum antivenom, and live pretty much no matter what. But the the other piece of it is that like snake bite is not a, you know, Jake would tell you again and again, told me again and again and again, snake bite is relatively easy to cure. It's not it's not as if it's a you know a, a technical deficiency. It's mostly just that nobody had nobody was willing to invest the money needed to make it happen. So Jake's got the technology, Tim's got the antibodies, but up to this point, it was all just a theory. If they wanted to get the funding they'd need to keep moving forward, they'd have to show people that it actually works. What happens next? Like, how does the science move forward? One day, Jake basically sets up a, uh, a mobile blood draw. In July 2017, a woman came and took Tim's blood and chipped it off to Glenville's lab in San Francisco. Then, for the next 19 days, Tim injected escalating doses of four or five different venoms. Then, on day 28, the same woman came back, took more blood, and shipped it off again. At the lab, distributed bioscientists could compare the two samples of blood, looking to see if the antibodies had changed, gotten better between the first blood draw and the second. Was it reacting to the venom? It was. So they started exposing it to different venoms that his body had never seen before. And then combinations of venom proteins that don't even exist in nature. And watching what happened. Holy shit. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> so we grew... Just last week, as we were finishing up this episode, Jake texted me a video of the most recent test results. The distributed bioscientist that works on this project, Raymond Newland, had put together 25 proteins specially engineered to find antibodies that would cross-react to multiple venoms. To your immune system, it would be kind of like getting bit by eight different types of snakes at once. They are hoping to find out if Tim's blood actually contained those master key antibodies. So they started off exposing normal human plasma, and the line on the graph showing how many antibodies are reacting is in the middle, kind of flat. And then I flow Tim's plasma, and we have baller antibodies in his freaking plasma. <laughs> if you can't hear it in their voices, the line on the graph goes up. More antibodies are reacting, so it works. God damn it, Tim. You glorious <laughs> bastard. <laughs> and probably because of results like these, if you talk to Tim, he's already convinced that the universal antivenom is a done deal. He pictures three products for snake bites. A vaccine for people who work with snakes or at a high risk of getting bit. A human antivenom for people who get bit on accident. And the current slate of antivenoms, because there's no reason not to have them around. If you use the first thing, you won't need the second. Because I don't need the second. I made the second, but don't need the second. 
and have those three products have the three products on the shelf is the key point of my message. The vaccine, human antivenom, the current antivenom will save a shitload of people. But if you talk to Jake, it's not actually that simple. Because even if they make a drug that works, it's still a long road to actually treating people with it. But if their results continue looking so good, the next step is to test their drug on mice. And if that works, they'll make a drug for dogs and cats and horses, for veterinarians to give out when pets get bit by snakes. And if it keeps working, and at this point we're looking at least three years down the road, but if it keeps working, then they'll look for funding to start human trials. We need a sponsor, so we're hoping it's one of the uh, U.S. military or other militaries around the world, um, all of whom are definitely interested in having like a single syringe that has a broad-spectrum antivenom, so that when their, their boys are out in the bush and one of them gets bit, they don't need to go hunt the snake down. They can just grab this thing and jab it in their leg and they'll be okay. But several things might still go wrong. Just because an antibody binds with a protein and a venom doesn't necessarily mean that it's destroying or neutralizing that protein. So they'll have to test for that. And there might be some problem recovering and copying the antibodies. Remember, this is all brand new technology. And then the next ever-present set of concerns is funding. When it comes to finding a new drug, there are a bunch of different things you have to pay for. But mostly you pay to prove that your drug is safe. So first you test it on primates. And if that goes okay, then you give it to healthy volunteers or paid subjects who sit around in a room with people watching them to see if they develop any side effects. No side effects? Then you get to move on to using the drug to actually counteract the venom. But you can't actually dose anyone with venom. So instead what you have to do is make a bunch of your drug and hand it out at clinics and hospitals and places likely to see snakebite victims and wait for them to come in. But even that's not good enough. Because if you have an antivenom that you know works, you can't ethically give someone an experimental drug that might not work. So you have to wait for people to come in who have snake bites for which there is no antivenom. Tim probably said it best. This stuff takes a shitload of money and a shitload of time. And it would all be for a drug that Glanville estimates might make $30 million a year. A lot of money to you, me, and Tim Friedy, but not for big drug companies. So, while there are other scientists trying to improve antivenoms, the big pharmaceutical players with the money to conduct these kinds of trials, they aren't touching it. But money might not be the only reason why. So, I also just want to like make clear that like that that ethically this is a really this has been a very complicated story because it's weird ethically from the medical side of things, but it's also weird ethically from 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 my side of things as a journalist. When Kyle first reached out to Tim, Tim offered to get bit by a snake for the story. Kyle could see it, write about it, and probably be the lead. And Kyle said, that sounds great. But then he had second thoughts. Tim has demonstrated that it's possible to become immune to snake bites, but he doesn't stay immune. The body only keeps antibodies on hand for so long, so Tim needs booster shots if he wants to maintain his titer levels. And sometimes things go wrong. He might inject too much and be stuck in bed for a month which happened after the History Channel came to film him. Or he might have an allergic reaction, going to anaphylaxis. That's happened 12 different times. You know, I don't need to see this. Like, I don't want to be involved with it if there's blood on my hands. You know, if something does happen, I, I don't want that. I don't want to be involved with that. And so, so Kyle told yeah, Tim he didn't want him to do it. it was no booster shots, no snake bites. He could watch it all on YouTube. But Tim did the booster anyway. And then when Kyle showed up, 
he brought out a water cobra. And, and Tim would be like, you know, bite me, bite me, bite me. Don't bite me. You're not going to bite me. You're not going to bite me, are you? And, and But he couldn't get it to bite him in front of Kyle. So Tim milked its venom, drew it into syringe, and stuck the needle in his arm. He was bound and determined to stick himself with the venom. But also, he was doing it because Kyle was there. So how much was Kyle to blame if something happened? Um, how did that go? Was he okay? He was fine. <laughs> yeah. I bring this up only because something similar played out whenever Tim would reach out to a scientist. Tim's experiments on himself have led to something that might be a huge breakthrough. But using those results, depending on how you look at it, might also be unethical. Because throughout the history of medicine, there have been all sorts of breakthroughs from experiments on prisoners, soldiers, and unknowing populations. But the scientific community has fondly, for the most part, moved away from that as an acceptable practice. Is this kind of what, is like, is Tim the man we need now? Um, who's just sort of for these, for these major breakthroughs? Like, who's willing to kind of just, like, sacrifice his body? And that is exactly what they would say is, some people would say is the ethical dilemma. So simply by doing what Jake has done with Tim's blood, you, are the, you, you could then be encouraging other people to do what Tim has done. As you might imagine, Tim sees it differently. Uh, there is no dilemma, and I've went in this uh, conversation exclu- exclusively before the interview came out. Um... When I talked to the FDA, Dr. Charles Maplethorpe, many years ago we discussed this. He's the lead medical scientist at the FDA. And we talked about this. And here's his position on it, and it comes from the horse's ass. The government cannot stop me from doing anything to myself. The government only comes into play when you make a product. Are we going to make a product? Yes. Then the government comes into play. Self-experimentation, the medical history, like I said, 15 Nobel winners. What does that tell you? It pretty much answers that question. I am not training nobody. Um, None of the scientists I've ever worked with have told me what to do. I was doing this before they met me. That's something I chose on my own, and they had no say in it. And that's the agreement that we have to this day. They don't tell me what to do. I do it to myself, and if they want the blood, they get it. They cannot stop you from doing that. And as long as that's really what's happening, Tim is injecting himself on his own accord, for his own reasons, and Glanville is just harvesting the data, there is an ethical route through this. It's the same kind of research structure that people would use if they're doing HIV research, where you definitely want to look at people at the period where they may be getting HIV. The ethics there is, you know, people gets a little scary. We're like, I don't know, do you want to look at someone who's an intravenous drug user or a, a sex worker or something? That might be scary. But, but the answer is that, no, you can create good bioethical frameworks to do that appropriately. So for, like, HIV research um, or, you know, hepatitis C or whatnot, what you do is you, you do these non-interventional studies where you go identify a group, a group of people and you say, listen, you're going to carry out, I'm not going to ask you to change your behavior in any way. I'm just asking you to take some samples along the way so you can kind of watch the process. And that way you're not exposing them to any additional risk. But that's kind of a gray area. Because when Glanville reached out to Tim, Tim was trying to get away from self-immunizing, hanging up the syringe. Because snake bites suck. No one was paying attention. I gave up. I don't know how many times I gave up. Just because I couldn't take it no more. But when Glanville called, he got right back to it. 
not because Glanville asked him to, but just because he called. So it's murky waters. But you could also make the same argument that it's unethical to, like, because Tim has done this and, you know, with with a couple of years of research and, and applying the right tools to the job, you could then save 125,000 lives a year. Like, you could argue that the other side, that it's unethical not to embrace this yep. thing that, yep. that Tim has done. Yeah, I agree. And I think and I think Jake, and I'm sure Jake and Tim would tell you the exact same thing. And do they talk about it as kind of a, an altruistic project? Yeah, I mean... Absolutely. I think Kyle says Jake's childhood in Guatemala is part of what's motivating this work. But it's also simply the fact that this is an interesting problem that he can solve. I think he'll talk about it like in very altruistic terms, and I believe him. But I think his interest in this was mostly like solving a complex riddle. Tim also felt like if we know how to do this and no one else is doing it, I guess it should be me. But like I said, every time I either talk to somebody or turn the net on somebody's dying from snake bite and I have the cure and I'm like okay I'm not doing my job good enough I have to do a better job what makes you good at this what what does it take to be good at this um what does it take to be good at this I have a switch in my head that I can shut off I kind of call it a fear switch a little bit I mean like, before I get bit by certain stuff, I, I just, I kind of, uh, I kind of black out. If a universal anti-venom does get made, it'll be on the back of Tim's effort, Jake's knowledge, and a whole lot of luck. Luck that the technology to copy antibodies came along while Tim was still injecting himself. Luck that someone with the proper expertise was interested enough in tropical diseases in the developing world to find a way through the ethical minefield. And luck that Tim didn't actually die, even if he was willing to sacrifice everything. Would you do all of this again? Yeah, I would. Absolutely. Yeah, I I won't change uh, my passion and my love for humanity and try to make a difference in this world. Um, It's my driving passion. It's not money. You know, I have the ability to use my body to make a difference. This is all I do. This is all I know. This is all I'm good at. So no, I have no regret. I have zero, zero regrets. Zero. And my wife and I, my ex-wife and I talk about it and we're fine. My kids and I talk about it and it's fine. My girlfriend and I talk about it, it's fine. My friends and I talk about it, it's fine. I didn't try to intentionally hurt anybody, regardless of the effort I put into what I love to do. Of course, it still may not work. Tim, in the end, may just be a metalhead with a high pain tolerance. But it's rare that a story of brutal suffering in the name of scientific progress is something that pretty much everyone involved can be proud of. I don't, it just seems like it's such a strange, it really it just seems like, this seems like such a singular case where there's this one guy who got really obsessed with this strange thing and had the idea that his antibodies could be made into a universal antivenom and then for some strange confluence of technology and another like brilliant scientist, it actually seems to be happening. But I don't think that this is something that's going to be repeated often in the history of the world. People do dangerous stuff and put it on YouTube every day. There's not a lot out there that's quite so dangerous as getting bit by a black mamba. 
or quite so selfless as spending two decades in pain for the benefit of people you're never going to meet. Here, shake my fucking hand. This guy, out in YouTube land, this guy is trying to fucking make you live, especially if you're in Africa and you're at risk for a black mamba bite. This guy is trying to take envenomations and make an antivenom for you. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. You're the man. I just get bit <laughs> talking. <laughs> so that's that. Not dead. Wow. This piece was written and produced by me, Peter Fairgrat, with music and sound design by Robbie Carver. It was based on a ton of reporting and research and an article in the June issue of Outside by Kyle Dickman. It was brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making ingredients that are the backbone of proper nutrition for athletes. Find out more at bobsredmill.com. Thanks to Adam Hose at Cool Blue Studios in Appleton, Wisconsin. This episode of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, economic performance, and self-immunization. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX.